0: Here we are in Ecclesiastes chapter twelve. Uh, this is one of the more well-known parts of Ecclesiastes. Working through this, I thought there there's a there's several issues that we need to look at. One is is the the translation, the Hebrew, and then how is it interpreted, and then what does remember mean? And that's before we even get into the whole rest of uh, verses two and following. And as I was putting together my notes, uh, I got to the remember, and I was already on my last page of what is normally my full set of notes. So I thought, well, we could either have a two-hour service or I could break it up. And there's advantages and disadvantages to both. The advantages to doing two hours is I've got it all in and then I'm staying on schedule. When I work through a couple months, I I look ahead and I plan on preaching this passage, working through Ecclesiastes or whatever whatever book it might be, And so by my saying, we're just going to look today at the translation and how to interpret it. And what does remember mean? I have thrown off my schedule. We need to add another Sunday to December somehow so that we can make everything fit. Well, this is going to be a little different in in that we're going to walk through some things that you might think, this isn't very evangelistic. How are people going to be one to Christ by looking at what the Hebrew is and the different ways of interpreting it? And my response to that is, this is not necessarily an evangelistic gathering. This is a gathering of Christ's church, first and foremost, where we gather together to worship the Lord, to learn, and to be equipped to serve him. If unbelievers are present. How are they convicted of their sin? By seeing God. By seeing God as Christ's church worships God. As they hear about God through the word. And yes, as they hear the gospel. By far the most evangelistic work that we do is when you are out and about in your daily life. As you're rubbing shoulders with them. And we need to remember that. So you might look at your handout today, if you're using that, and I need to find mine. And you might say, why is there a blank on the front here? Do I have that much introduction? Nope, I'm already done with my introduction. (laughs) Why did I do that? Well, if you open it up and turn on the inside... That's because I want to walk through the translation of the passage, and I have some translation notes. And I don't know about you, but I don't like flipping back and forth. I like it all right here. That's why I did it that way, okay? Now, if you want to use this side for prayer requests or something like that, you can, uh, but that's why I did that. Before we get into this, uh, a few notes about Bible translations. Number one, this isn't in your notes. This is just for free, so you can put it on the front, you know, the blanks Translations are a blessing, and I hope you are thankful for Bible translations, because otherwise, you need to become a Hebrew scholar of Hebrew scholars, a Greek scholar of Greek scholars. You, I cannot tell you how well you're going to need to know Hebrew and Greek in order to just pick it up and read it by sight. That is really hard. Really difficult. We need to be thankful for Bible translations. <laughs> They're a great blessing. They've been given, they've been done so that we can read God's word so that we can know what is, has God said. Who is God? How can we love him? How can we obey him? And how can we serve him? We need to be so thankful for those men who have worked hard at preparing these. A second thing then that we need to remember, translations are not perfect. I'm not saying God's word is not perfect. I did not say that. What did I say? Translations are not perfect. Um, if every translation was perfect, I would have got a 4.0 in Hebrew. I would have gotten a 4.0 in Greek because every time I would have translated, it would have been perfect. Boy, that would have been nice. I struggled to get a B in Hebrew. It was miserable. Luther talked about how Hebrew about made them, uh, you know, against Jews because Hebrew is a tough language. No translation is perfect. The people, the men who did the translations, by and large, they love the Lord and they want to serve him and they want to get it right. But we need to remember that. We must remember that. Because when people say their translation has no errors, or that it's impossible for something to be wrong in their translation, that is a great mistake, folks. That is saying it's equal to the Hebrew and the Greek originals, And this is growing in a lot of churches. It divides a lot of churches. It's just wrong teaching. Wrong teaching. Are there good translations and are there not so good translations? Absolutely. Absolutely. But we need to remember these things. So if you're following along there on on your sheet, I say, first of all, I preach here from the New King James. Uh, That's what many of you have. But the New King James and the KJV miss the Hebrew at several important points. And they're not alone. The New American Standard, the English Standard Version, the New International Version, they miss a few points as well. Now, has this happened before in preaching through Ecclesiastes, where I've said, you know, a better way to interpret or translate that is this. Yeah, I have. Okay, The challenge was here is there's like a half a dozen of them. And I thought it'd just be better for me. Plus, there's a couple other things I want to get in that I can do by putting it in print for you here. Uh, and so I provided you with an adjusted text in the New King James with corrections underlined. So let me read through this. Follow along. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say I have no pleasure in them. Now, you might wonder, why is that in bold? Well, just remember that. I'll come back to that. Verse two, remember your creator before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few and those that look through the windows grow dim, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when the sound of a bird rises up And all the daughters of music are brought low. Also, they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and the caperberry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. So, why did I make some of these uh, changes here? So, if you look in the number two, the translation notes there. uh, So, for verse two, there's several, a couple things here. I added at the beginning of verse 2, remember your creator. Uh, The translators did that in verse 6. If you use, let's see here, the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, they will put in italics uh, words or phrases added to help you understand the sense. That is perfectly right and good to do that. We need to do that. Anytime, anytime you go from one language to another, you cannot have... A word-for-word translation. Now that might, wait a minute, we need to have a word-for-word. It's impossible. You cannot do it because their structure is different. Hebrew puts the verb first, and then the object, and then the sentence. What do we usually put first? The subject, and then what? The verb, and then what? The object. Those Hebrews, they needed to get their English right. (laughs) They're not English! They're not American! They're Hebrew, and that's how they talk. So it's perfectly right uh, to do that sort of thing. And I did that in verse 2 so that it helps us see Solomon's point. So just for illustration to help you see this, how does he start verse 1? Remember your creator. And then verse 2, remember your creator. And then verse 6, remember your creator. We'll get to that again. Back to the translation notes, number 2. Before is the correct translation of the Hebrew phrase just used in verse 1 and translated before and then later in verse 6 as before. So look at verse 2. You'll see I crossed out while. I'm saying that that is best translated as before. And so I put it, remember your creator before. That's how the translators did in verse 1. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth before. It's the exact same Hebrew phrase and then again in verse 6, remember your creator before. It's the exact same Hebrew phrase. So just making some consistency there to help us understand it. And the third thing with verse 2, probably the perhaps the most controversial, pastors taking away from the word of God, because I crossed out the word not and do not. Uh, this is that same Hebrew phrase. Number three, not and do not are incorrect translations of the same Hebrew phrase Translated in verse 1, verse 6, as before. If you look at every other English translation, they do not translate it as not. Um, So what if they had been consistent? What what if the translators did do that? Uh, So if they not only put not in verse 3 or verse 2, but they also did it in verse 1, verse 6. Look at verse 1. This is what it would sound like. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days don't come and the years don't draw near. And then verse 6. Remember your Creator before the silver cord is not loosed or the golden barrel is not broken and so on. You see the idea there, okay? Uh, this is a Hebrew phrase and I'm not going to quote it for you because you don't know Hebrew and it, it just move on, okay? Verse 4. Uh, verse 4. There's a significant debate in verse 4 about the subject of rises. Uh, It says in the third line of verse four there, uh, whether it's a human being rising to listen to a bird's song or the bird's song that rises. So as I've looked at the Hebrew, the other parallel phrases in that verse, I opt for the bird's song rising. So in verse four, the doors are shut. The sound of the grinding is low. Uh, The daughters of music are brought low. The sound of the bird rises up. Uh, This is not something I am willing to resign as pastor over. I'm not willing to die for this one, okay? (laughs) Uh, But just to help us understand that a little better. Then two, under verse five. Verse five. Uh, I have the grasshopper drags itself along rather than is a burden. Well, the meaning of the Hebrew word describing the grasshopper is drag along, not a burden. And then a uh, last part of the verse 5 we'll look at. The New King James, the King James, the ESV, and the NIV, they translate and interpret the Hebrew word as referring to desire, as opposed to the more concrete meaning, caperberry. You might look at that and think, caperberry? What is that? It's an actual plant in the Mediterranean area. It's the caper plant. And it grows, guess what? berries. And that's what this Hebrew word refers to, the caper plant. Many of the translations, they want to help the reader understand what's being said here. Did you ever hear of a caper plant before? Many of us probably didn't. And so what they've done is help us understand the point of it. Some say, we want a translation that is free from interpretation. That is impossible. You cannot do it. Anytime and every time you translate, you're interpreting. You have to do it when you're going from one language to another. Give you an example. Romans chapter 6, verse 2. Paul says in Romans 6, 1, Shall we sin that grace may increase? And what's Paul's answer in verse 2? I heard some different wordings here. Some say, may it never be. Others said, God forbid. (gasps) What's going on? We better go to the Greek, huh? Meganoita is the Greek there. Literally hmm, translated, may it never be. There's no Greek word for God there. But the translators, uh, whether it was the King James or the Geneva or the great Bible, I don't remember where it started. To help us get the force of it, they put God forbid. Is that wrong that they did that? No, it's not. And so my point here is that the translators, they, uh, many of the translations put it, desire fails. I think it's best to keep it right here as the caperberry is ineffective. Wasn't that fun? You're like, Let's move on. Pastor, I'm glad you know Hebrew. I didn't say I know Hebrew. I can work through it. I've taken a lot of it. But I'm not saying I can pick up my Hebrew Bible and just start reading it. I can't do that. It is a tough language. Let's move on now to number two, how the passage is translated. This is a minefield. Have you ever walked through a minefield? I think there might be only one individual here that has walked through a minefield. Is that true? I didn't practice out. Yeah. You obviously succeeded because you didn't <laughs> blow up when you practiced. When you're walking through a minefield, you're not just running through and just kind of stomping your way around. You are carefully going through because there's dangers there. Okay, This is a, a minefield here in interpreting it. <clears throat> Number one, most say that verses 1 through 7 is an allegory. A-L-L-E-G-O-R-Y. Most say that verses 1 through 7 is an allegory of emotional and physical deterioration. Your body wears down. What is an allegory? An allegory uses symbols to describe different aspects of life. It intentionally has two meanings. The author meant it that way. The author intentionally wrote this. This is different from allegorical interpretation. An allegory is a legitimate uh, way of writing where the author meant this to have two meanings. And he's using symbols to describe different aspects of life. So how does this work out? What does this look like, this allegorical? Using this as an allegory, referring to the uh, uh, deterioration of life. Well, when it talks like, for example, in verse 3, in the days when the keepers of the house tremble and strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few. And I might just stop right there and before we get into that, I didn't put this in your translation there, but I am almost ready to say that that should be the women grinders cease. But I'm not going to worry about that right now. That's another Hebrew thing. What is that referring to? Those who say this is an allegory say that that is talking about when you lose your teeth. The grinders are few. And when you don't have grinders, what can't you eat? I mean, it's it's hard to eat. That's my point there, okay? And so most say that this talks about the different phases of life. As you get older, your body starts to creak, and uh, eventually you will die. Um, Another man said, this looks ahead to the end-time judgment of the world. Whoa, that's not talking about the deterioration of the body. He's saying this is an allegory of the end-time judgment of the Lord and the world. Well, those are two completely different interpretations, aren't they? That brings us then to the n- number two, the problem. The problem is this, different interpretations of what the phrases mean. We have different interpretations of what the phrases mean. Every one that I've read, I should put it that way, Every of the friends on my shelf, my commentaries that I've read that see this as referring to physical deterioration, every one of them says that the grinders cease because they are few. That is talking about you can't chew anymore because you lost your teeth. But when it gets to verse 4, the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low. Suddenly, what happened to that unanimity? Everybody believes that the grinders is talking or not having grinders is you can't chew because you don't have teeth, but they started to have different understandings of when, verse four, the doors are shut in the streets. like what? One man said this: "This is the result of not having teeth. The mound, the mouth collapses, affecting your teeth. And you could see that. People who lose their teeth, what happens to? The mouth collapses. The doors are shut. Another man said, who also believed that when you lose your grinders, it's talking about not having teeth. He said, this means not having much to say. And so you chew really softly. But that's two different meanings, isn't it? So which one? All in favor of the first one? All in favor of the second one? How do we decide? Flip a coin. That's easy when you have only two. But when you start getting three and four, and they're out there, it starts to get a little hairy. Then number three then. The issue. Who controls interpretation? What controls interpretation? What controls interpretation? So we start getting into this. As I've considered this, and weighed this, there's nothing in the text that says this is an allegory. There's nothing in the text that helps me understand what this allegory is saying. Are there allegories in Scripture? Oh, you betcha. Let me give you two examples, and then I'll give you one from English literature I know you've heard of. First allegory in Scripture, John 15. Jesus is speaking to his disciples The night before he's betrayed. And you're going to help me finish what he says because you know it. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the... That is a, what's the word? Allegory. Intentionally having two meanings. Was Jesus actually a vine? No. He's using a symbol to describe something about him. Furthermore, he said, I am the vine, you're the branches. Who's my father? He's the vine dresser. Do I know that that's an allegory? You betcha. Jesus tells me what each one means. It's not left up to what I think it could mean. Jesus says what it means. A second example of an allegory in scripture, Ephesians 6 Ephesians 6, where Paul said, Put on the whole armor of God. I am really disappointed as I'm looking out at the congregation this morning. No one here has a breastplate on. No one here is wearing a helmet. No one here has a shield. No one here has a sword. We have to put on the whole armor of God, folks. Paul uses an allegory, two intentional meanings to get one point across. How do I know it's an allegory? He tells me what the breastplate refers to. Put on the breastplate of God, which is what? The righteousness. Put on the helmet of God, which is what? Salvation. Take up the shield, which is what? Faith. Take up the sword, which is what? The word of God. How do you know that? Because you're creative. Because you know. No, because why? The author told us that. The author told us that. An illustration of an allegory in in English literature that every one of you knows about. Pilgrim's progress. How do I know it's an allegory? He told us it's an allegory. You have the main character, Christian. Who's he representing? You better get this one right. The <laughs> Christian. Then you have Mr. Worldly Wise. You gotta love the creative, uh, the names that he has for all those different characters. Mr. Worldly Wise, the guy who is involved in the world and he thinks uh, just being a, a moral, be, just being moral is good enough and he almost was successful in pulling Christian over. Just, just be moral, Mister Worldly Wise. You see the point here? How do we know that those are allegories? The author told us. The author either told us it's an allegory, or he tells us what they mean. Do we have either of those here in Ecclesiastes twelve? No, we don't. So we need to be really careful. So what is Solomon saying, number four? Well, you have your little sheet there. Remember I told you, that little translation there, okay? Um, Have that handy. I'm going to refer to that. Those parts that are in bold, there's three of them. End of verse 1, 5, and 7. End of verse 1, I have no pleasure in them. End of verse 5, man goes to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. And then verse 7 the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Here we have three statements of fact. You're going to have difficult days that cause you not to have any enjoyment in them. The second statement of fact, you're going to die. The third statement of fact, after you die, what's going to happen to your body? You're going to turn to dust. Three statements of fact. They're repeated because that is the point Solomon is making here. Something else I'd like you to do with your pen or pencil. Verse 1. Remember now the Creator in the days of your youth, and then circle this word before. Circle that word before. And then verse 2. Remember your Creator, and then circle the word before. Before the sun and the light. And then verse 6. Remember your creator. And guess what you're going to circle here? Before. Three times. Before. And it's the same Hebrew phrase. Solomon's main point. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. And then he hits three items. Why you need to remember your creator before difficult days come, before you die, before you turn to dust. We'll look and walk through those next week and how that develops, uh, how how Solomon does that. Those are Solomon's motivations. And so what is this? This is a poem. That's what this is. This is a poem where he details difficult, woeful circumstances in life. So instead of resorting to seeing allegories, this is a poem describing those different situations of life. And Solomon's point, before those situations of life come, you must remember your creator. That then leads us to number three, the question then. So what does remember mean? What does remember mean? Let's consider the word itself. Here, the word remember isn't just, oh yeah, I forgot that. I need to remember that. It's more involved. Words have their particular, can words have different meanings? Yes. But words in a context only have one meaning. Words have a particular meaning in its context. And it gains that from their context. give you two illustrations. How many men here are sent on an errand by their wives to go to the store to pick up some items? They pick up some items and they bring them back. And I know exactly what I am. I've hit the nail on the head because I see some men smiling right now. You come back and you've got some things. And your wife said, didn't you remember? what I told, what I asked you to go get? You found some other things. Well, it was a good deal. Or, I really wanted that. What about the one thing? Oh, I forgot. I didn't remember. So my philosophy, husband tip, Anytime I get more than two things, I start making a list. (laughs) And sometimes with two things, I might write both down just to make sure I get them. Second illustration. Maybe this would be something from a, a parent to a young person or child. Especially when that young person finally gets their driver's license. And they're about to drive out. Oh, the lectures that occur. Drive careful. Look out. And this one. Remember what I told you. Now, are we really concerned that they've actually forgotten like you forget things at the grocery store? No. What we're saying and meaning by, remember what I told you. You know what I told you. You must live in line with what I told you. Two different meanings of the word. It depends on the what? The context. So learning what's involved and remember here in chapter 12, verse 1. We can gain that from the Old Testament basis of Ecclesiastes. The background and the foundation of Ecclesiastes is the Old Testament scriptures, which Ecclesiastes is part of. So what Old Testament scriptures were already present for Solomon that he knew when he wrote this book? Well, you've got Genesis through Deuteronomy, sometimes called... The law. His dad loved God's word. Did his dad write any scripture? He wrote a lot of the Psalms. Had Solomon written any scripture by this point? Yeah, I think so. He would have written Proverbs, much of the Proverbs, teaching wisdom, the skillful and correct application of the truth, the law, to everyday life. This is the background. This is the foundation. And so when we read this word, remember, we can know what Solomon meant by looking at what soaked his mind, what scripture was filled his mind so that when he said, remember, we can know what he was getting at. That's what we have here in these scripture passages. So let's look at these. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 23. Deuteronomy, chapter 4, and verse 23. Deuteronomy, the book itself, is a a collection of several of Moses' messages that he gave to Israel while they're on the east side of the Jordan. They're getting ready to cross over. A new generation, the old generation passed off except for Joshua and Caleb. And so God, uh, Moses is uh, reiterating to them God's law. Deuteronomy four twenty three. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. Did you see the word remember in there? Yeah, I didn't either. But did you see the opposite of the word remember there? What is it? Forget, take heed, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourself to carve an image. What's the second commandment? Thou shalt not make any what? Graven image. That's what he's referring to. When he's saying, don't forget that command, he's saying, positively, Remember. Remember what I told you. Go to chapter 6. We think of chapter 6, and we think of the beginning. When we have that great statement of uh, faith in the Old Testament, verse 4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Teach him to your children, etc. Drive down to verse 12. Then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God, uh, I'll just stop there, verse 13. Fear the Lord and serve him. That's what is being said here. Don't forget, instead, fear him. Drop down to verse, uh, chapter six, 8, chapter eight, verse 8. couple here. Chapter 8 and verse 8. Here he's talking about the land that they've come to. Verse 8, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and out of the hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord God. How? By not keeping His commandments, His judgments, and His statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you've eaten and are full, have built beautiful houses and dwell in them. And when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and so on. The Lord alone, verse 10, is to be blessed and praised. The Lord alone. How has he forgotten? Verse 11, when he's disobeyed. And then verses 14 to 17, God is forgotten when we have a self, when they would have a self-centeredness. Their heart is lifted up. Verse 17, you shall say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And then verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day Then it shall be. If you by any means forget the Lord your God, and follow other gods, and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. God would be forgotten when they followed other gods. When they didn't obey God. Let's go to Judges. Judges chapter 3. When you think of the book of Judges. What's the key phrase that summarizes. That gives us the character of the time of Judges. Every man did what? That which is right in their own eyes. Does that sound like they're remembering God? Nope. It sounds like what? They're Forgetting God. They're disobeying him. Judges chapter 3, verse 7, as an example. It's full of it, the whole book. Judges 3, 7. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Examples of idolatry there. Psalm 9. Psalm 9. Now we get into some things that his Solomon's dad wrote. Solomon wrote heard Solomon would have sung Psalm 9 in verse 17 Psalm of thanksgiving and helpful for God's people Israel and we to have a right assessment of those who hate the Lord Psalm 9 verse 17 The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. This is not meaning that nations knew God, that they somehow had this knowledge of God in the sense of they had the, the gospel and the stars or something like that. This is meaning they worshiped idols. They lived a moral, godless lives, and they will be turned into hell. Psalm 50, number seven. Psalm 50, verses 22 to 23. Psalm 50, verse 22. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. How do you know the difference between one who remembers God and one who forgets God? One who remembers God does verse 23. (coughs) He worships God alone, and he directs his life to obey God's commands. The wicked don't. They worship other things, and they live how they want. They forget, as it were, God. Psalm 106. Psalm 106. Psalm 106 is a review of Israel's um, history, especially during the time of the judges. Psalm 106 and verse 13 says, they, this is referring to Israel, they soon forgot his works and did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And then drop down to verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb. Remember the golden calf? They worshiped the molded image. They changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Israel. They forgot God through idolatry. Psalm 119, you look there, verse 9, or number 9. There's a bunch of them, verse 16, 83, 93, and so on, where it says, A bunch of times, I will not forget your word. And in these, I'm not going to read them, but in these, the psalmist says, when I go through this, when I experience this, when I'm going through this trial, I will not forget you. I will not forget your word. In other words, when I go through this hard time, I'm going to stay faithful to you, Lord. I'm going to remember you. I'm going to continue trusting you, loving you, and obeying you through this hard time. Proverbs 3. Who wrote the book of Proverbs? Most of it, Solomon. The last part, a uh, couple chapters, we have so, uh, Proverbs from different kings, Agger and Hezekiah. But by far the majority is written by Solomon. He says in Proverbs 3.1, My son, do not forget my law. What's it look like if you don't forget the law? Your heart keeps my commands. That's the idea of remembering is obeying what God says. And then chapter four, verses five and six. Chapter four, verses five and six. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her. She will preserve preserve you, love her, and she will keep you. I also give you there number 11. We're not going to turn to these uh, passages from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Hosea. These are prophets who lived after Solomon's time. They use the same expressions of forgetting God or remembering. But I, was, I would especially uh, encourage you to look at Hosea fourteen or 13 sometime, verse 6. Hosea 13, 6, when they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted and therefore they forgot me. Why would you want to remember that? Go back to Ecclesiastes 12 now with me. Do you remember the message from two weeks ago? Uh, I know you preached. That's kind of like, do you remember what you ate two weeks ago? I know I was fed. And that's the idea here. I preached through Ecclesiastes 11, verses 7 through 10. There it talked about and the, the, the time of your youth, you got sunny days and good times. And so rejoice in those. Rejoice in those that the Lord gives you. Keeping in mind that you'll give an account. What does Solomon say right after urging them, believing young men, enjoy the time of your youth? What does he say right after that? Chapter 12, verse 1. Remember, and that's why I'm saying Hosea uh, 13:6 is so important. Help us to see it. When they had pasture, when they were filled, their heart was exalted, and they forgot me. What can happen when you've got so much? When you've got so much fun, when you've got so much blessing, when you're getting involved in life, what can happen? You can forget. God. these help us understand what Solomon is saying remember your creator there is the real danger especially young people but all of us there is the real danger when you're full when you're happy the excitement of life not take God into account. You forget him. You stop believing him. You stop following him. You live for other things. You know God's command, but you choose not to obey it. You know God's people gather to worship, but you'd rather do something else. And instead, you believe yourself, you believe other things, you listen to other voices, it is a different faith. So what does remember your creator mean? Number 13, remember your creator is another way of saying the fear of the Lord. We read some passages along that line. But it's just another way of saying the fear of the Lord. And what does that mean? Your last few blanks here. Only love, trust in, and obey the Lord. When Solomon says here, remember the Lord. He is saying, you must love only Christ. You must trust in only Christ. You must obey Christ. The academics of translation and interpretation are important. That helps us have a grasp of what's being said here. What is Solomon saying here? He's saying now is the time. Now is the time to trust in the Lord. Now is the time to obey him. Not later on in life. What will Solomon say is going to happen later on in life? Difficulty, death, and dust. Now. Now. We all need to hear now, don't we? We must all hear that. And we must ask Am I not believing you as I should? You must ask yourself, are there commands Jesus has given that you are not obeying? Has the world grabbed a hold of your affections so that you love the world instead of loving the Lord Jesus Christ? Now is the time to trust in him. Before the difficult days come, before you die, before you return to dust, remember your Creator.